Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hello friends and a warm welcome from me Dimitar and the Martin Centre. I hope that you're keeping that COVID gloom at bay and uh, looking forward to sunnier and more social times ahead. Also greetings from the ghost town of Brussels where the Eurobubble streets are still empty, but your usual suspects of politicians, bureaucrats and lobbyists are buzzing with activity. The whole topic of the season is artificial intelligence. As the European Commission recently unveiled its long-awaited proposal for regulating AI. The European Union aims high by proposing a governance framework for a continent which would hopefully be considered as a global example. As one could expect, the text touches on many, many vital issues and opens the door for a fierce debate on how to strike the right balance. Our today's topic is both interesting and complex, so let's try to tackle it with our new guest expert. Ella Jakubowska is part of the European Digital Rights Network. EDRI, for short, is an association of civil and human rights organizations from across Europe, which stands up for rights and freedoms in the digital domain. Ella leads EDRI's advocacy on biometric technologies, such as facial recognition, and is also involved in the team's work on artificial intelligence and non-discrimination. Prior to joining Edri, Ella worked on digital business transformation. Ella, I'm really glad that you managed to join us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, Ella, your organization, Edri, is quite, quite popular in Brussels, but perhaps you can tell us a bit more about your work for our listeners who are not fully familiar with your mission. Absolutely. So Edri has been around for almost 20 years now. We're a civil society group working on a really wide range of human rights in what we call the digital environment. So looking really at the ways that the growth of uh, artificial intelligence technologies, use of social media platforms and online services, and the massive boom in, in the collection of data across Europe uh, can impact our, our communities, our lives, our societies uh, in both the positive ways, but also most crucially making sure that our rights and our freedoms to be who we are and to live with privacy and dignity and to not be discriminated against, for example, are really upheld in this kind of digitized world that we live in. And you also work uh, with a, a wide range of NGOs and like-minded organizations across Europe, right? That's absolutely correct, yeah. So the Edry Network is now up to uh, an amazing total of 45 member organizations um, from almost every country from across the EU um, and a number from some other European countries that aren't in the EU as well. So we're able to have a really broad uh, approach to how we're tackling digital rights across Europe and to have the benefit of sitting centrally in Brussels so we can be close to the policy making and the law making, but also we get to draw on this amazing regional and national and local experience that our member organizations bring. Um, and that's everything from, from really small volunteer based organizations that are, are doing incredible work to raise awareness of these topics in their community through to 
almost household name type um, international organizations working on on the European human rights and digital context. So as a network, we definitely um, benefit from, from that expertise and from being able to, to challenge and learn from each other um, as we advocate uh, to the EU institutions and the EU member states for, effectively for, for better policy and for better protections for people's rights and freedoms. Mm. And you're working right in the heart of, of, of Brussels policy making. So I'm sure that uh, the recent AI proposal was, was one of the big topics for you. And um, um, a week or two ago, the European Commission unveiled its very ambitious proposal for new rules on AI. The text stretches above 100 pages, quite an ambitious ta task to cover all of the angles. But what are your first impressions of the text and how would you rate its level of ambition? <laughs> what, a, what a set of questions. Yeah, we were eagerly awaiting this proposal from the European Commission. And it, it's ambitious in the sense that this is the first uh, global region, global block that we're seeing that is putting forward such comprehensive rules to work out what artificial intelligence means for our societies and how we want to regulate it. So that's a really, really important step. And it's complex. We don't even have a fixed definition of what artificial intelligence even is. Um, we have a lot of mysticism and myths in society about what AI can do. We hear a lot from companies promising all sorts of amazing things from these technologies. Um, and, and yet a lot of people don't even know what we what we mean when we talk about AI, what it can do for our societies, um, what it shouldn't do for our societies. So absolutely, it's a milestone to have the EU looking at how to regulate it. In terms of the proposal itself, uh, we very much feel that it was not ambitious enough. Um, it's taken an approach that looks at balancing innovation with fundamental rights. And that's something that really concerns us because in the EU, we have human rights protections. We have a lot of laws, a lot of rules that say that people's rights to everything from privacy to um, you know, health, through to equality are, are really vital and cannot be infringed upon without a really, really strong reason to do so. Um, and yet this proposal is kind of putting across the idea that the innovation is on the same footing as fundamental rights. And it, it isn't. Of course, innovation is important. Uh, we're not saying that it's not. But this idea that you can somehow balance innovation, which isn't a fundamental right, with people's lives, people's health, people's well-being, people's safety um, is a very uh, worrying idea. And, and that's something that we've heard a lot of the European commissioners repeat and, and that, that we think needs to be challenged. And so really, if I was to sum it up, it's the fact that this proposal is based on ideas of risk um, that is, is one of the major problems. It's based on the idea that straight away we can know exactly the level of risk of a particular AI system, um, for example, based on which sector it comes from. And actually, there, there are so many uh, complexities and nuances when we're talking about AI. Um, everything from the fact that often um, there's a lot of opacity around how decisions are made, uh, whether technological opacity or deliberate choices of whether it's developers or um, the companies using them, you know, 
intellectual property, trade secret protections, that kind of thing. There's lots of reasons why it, it can be very hard to explain and properly understand AI um, that pose kind of some, some real threats and that mean that when we put AI technologies, and I, I use that as such a broad umbrella, and I do want to caveat it that in some ways it's so broad, it's almost meaningless to talk about AI technologies. Um, but when we put them into use, they can often be very, very different to the ways that were expected or the ways that were planned uh, as it was being developed. So we see the regulation starting to try and tackle some of these questions, but it absolutely does not go far enough. And it's a real problem that it, it does not take fundamental rights as the starting point. Um, for us, that was something that the GDPR, so the General Data Protection Regulation, did really well, uh, was to say, if something is, if a, if a use of technology, a use of data is compliant with people's rights and you've shown that, then you can innovate, you can develop, you can explore and experiment within this playing field where fundamental rights are, are the starting point, are the things that, that create that playing field. Whereas we've seen that flipped in, in this new proposal. And alongside that, we've seen that the proposal puts forward a lot of rules that actually when you dig under the surface are not so much rules after all, but guidelines. So for a lot of uses of AI that could still be very harmful, that could cause discrimination, for example, they're actually being left to self-regulation. So in effect, the companies that are developing these, these systems that are going to profit from them being bought and being used other ones that get to decide if it's going to be allowed or not. So we find that very, very problematic. Um, um, maybe let me just uh, jump jump uh, uh, right in here because you 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 raise a couple of couple of issues. One innovation which is extremely important, uh, especially in in the Brussels bubble sphere. This is always like a, a discussion point. Secondly, you mentioned the question of risk, and I, I just want to draw the conversation first to, to it, and then maybe we can go in more detail about self-regulation and, and specific specific angles. Um, maybe also for our listeners, it's good to, um, to um, make a little detail here that the Commission's proposal, when trying to regulate AI, it specifies different levels of, 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 of risk, uh, low level of risk, uh, higher level of risk, and also unacceptable levels of risk. And all of these categories lead to different consequences for industries and application. So Ella, tell us a bit more about these divisions. Are they workable? Are they adequate? In their current form, no, they're not adequate. Um, they are, they're quite a blunt way of, of looking at the levels of risk. Uh, you know, if we were starting from scratch, we would say we should be starting with Number one, is this thing acceptable uh, under fundamental rights rules? And then we can we can look at the other factors. Um, because whilst innovation, as you say, is vitally important, it shouldn't be innovation at any cost. We've seen in the EU, for example, uh, AI or so-called AI lie detector tests, which use facial recognition and emotion recognition to supposedly tell whether asylum seekers and migrants are telling the truth or not in uh, their immigration interview. And this, this was a, an EU funded project using AI, using biometrics, that not only had no scientific basis, but was very much targeted against some of society's most vulnerable people. If you're on the move, if you're seeking asylum or seeking to migrate or to travel, the power dynamics are already so uneven 
that you can't truly consent to an already scientifically unfounded system being used against you in a way that can can really harm your dignity. And, and that was touted as an experiment, as a, a piece of innovation by the EU. And for me, that's a really good example of where we cannot just give organizations, give companies a, a carte blanche to innovate at any cost. We need to think about the fact that there are some use cases of technologies that are too harmful to be permitted in our society. And that leads on quite nicely to this, this risk categorization that the European Commission's proposal put forward. Um, because as you say, broadly speaking, there was this, this low risk uh, category, the high risk and the unacceptable risk. And in principle, we really welcome the introduction of this unacceptable risk category. As civil society, not just the EDRI network, but a lot more broadly with other human rights and social justice organizations, we've been saying for a long time, that there are some uses of technology, no, no technologies in a blanket sense, we're not calling to ban any technologies, but it's about the uses that in our society just do not have a place. And I've been working in particular on uh, biometric mass surveillance. So that's uses of technologies like facial recognition that are used in public spaces in a way that scans everyone that, that leads to, to mass surveillance um, that we've been calling out. And we've seen that included somewhat in this list of prohibitions, these unacceptable use cases. And that's really, really positive that the Commission has recognised what we're saying, has taken on board our human rights analyses to see that there are some use cases that, that just pose a level of threat, a level of risk that, that's so high that in a democratic society, in a society that cares about people, uh, we shouldn't accept them, we shouldn't tolerate them, we shouldn't even experiment with them. But the issue remains for us that these prohibitions, these unacceptable use cases do not go far enough. Um, there's a prohibition on police using some of these technologies, but there's lots of loopholes and there's no provision saying that if it's a local authority like a school using this tech, that they should be banned. And that's a problem because we've been tracking a lot of the uses of facial recognition and other live biometric systems across Europe. And schools, for example, are one of the places where this innovation is, is really happening on a, a large scale. Yeah, um, I mean, facial recognition and biometric surveillance, this this is, has been a recurring topic um, in the Brussels Bytes podcast in the last one year. I've spoken with different people and experts on it when the framework was still in the making. We had a very interesting conversation with the vice president of Microsoft on it um, about the use cases, about the exceptions. But now it's actually in the text, it's in the headlines. Um, so let's really dig deep on, on, on this issue. Um, as far as I know, EDRI has a specific campaign, public campaign, that um, biometric mass surveillance should be fully banned. It should not be only kept for specific cases, but it should be fully, fully banned. What, what stands behind your rationale? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have this campaign, Reclaim Your Face. Um, we have over 60 organizations now that are part of it, and we've had support from almost 50,000 EU citizens joining our legal demands for, for a ban on biometric mass surveillance practices. And this campaign arose out of the 
uh, the urgent need that we felt to act. We've been tracking across Europe the increasing use of these technologies by law enforcement, by private companies, um, things like supermarkets and shopping centers, and by, by local authorities. And we did a really in-depth analysis where we concluded that there is no justification for using these technologies. So even in, in this new proposal from the European Commission, we've seen this mythologizing of what, what the technology can actually do. So one of the exceptions that's been set up for law enforcement of, uh, agencies, authorities to be able to continue to use facial recognition in public, what we would call mass surveillance, is if they're doing a air quotes, targeted search for a person of interest or a, a suspect in a particular crime. And this is, this, this, is a, this is not possible. When you are scanning every person that is going about in a public area, there's, you, you lose, you obscure the possibility for a targeted search. And we know this is the case because just a couple of weeks ago, the Italian Data Protection Authority spoke out about a use that the Italian government was trying to push through for live facial recognition in Italy. And the Data Protection Authority confirmed there that if you are scanning every person, even if you very quickly get rid of everyone's data, that's still mass surveillance. And that still has a massive chilling effect on everyone. It can make so many things harder, things like accessing healthcare, if you know, you're, you're being watched all the time, um, if you want to uh, you know, speak to a journalist to you know, blow the whistle on corruption, whatever it might be, there's a really broad range of, of processes and activities that we rely on in a democratic society that become really uncomfortable and potentially impossible if we're being watched, tracked and analysed all the time and having that linked to our faces, our bodies, and, and often private companies then using that, that information about our faces and bodies to make a profit. So as a campaign, we really felt the need to stand up and call out these practices and call for them to be unequivocally banned. And actually this, this latest proposal, this official proposal from the European Commission, for us just reinforces why it's so important that we've got so many of us from civil society and just regular people across Europe raising their voices against these practices. Because even in including, they call it real-time remote biometric identification in publicly accessible spaces, which you, know, you even hear from how I'm saying that, there's a lot of caveats about, you know, by putting in so much terminology, what does and doesn't get included in that in that ban. But then even within the scope of that pretty narrow ban, there are these, these really broad exceptions. And so even when when the, when the commission is, is giving ban, they're putting in exceptions that undermine really the very purpose of having a ban. So Whilst there are some safeguards when it comes to biometric mass surveillance that have been introduced by this proposal, we've got a lot of work to do over the next few years as the parliament and the council debate it and work out or get closer to, to the final text to make sure that that category of unacceptable uses is, is much wider and much stronger. Yeah, the, the list of potential examples um, and scenarios is, is staggering. I mean, in the last couple of months and years, as, as you mentioned, we've seen already cases about police enforcement using or misusing this technology because the rules are up in the air. Private companies are also very interested to, um, to, to use it to optimize services. 
one of my famous, not famous, but um, favorite in a way dystopian examples recently, I mean, I, I live in Belgium and um, the city of Ghent uh, pledged that for the next six months it will be um, deploying facial recognition surveillance in the big city centers and um, big crowd spaces in, in Ghent so that it can monitor crowd movements and whether people, uh, you know, um, follow social distancing or not. But it seems that they're implementing these measures without citizens or even politicians having the slightest, you know, the, even the, the smallest amount of public debate on these these issues while we're still, you know, making this ambitious, ambitious framework. Um, even though I personally uh, agree with most of the things you, you mentioned, um, there isn't, there's a couple of important points which must be raised. Question about security, question about terrorism. Um, the Martin Center recently organized uh, a, a dedicated event on artificial intelligence, and one of the experts from the European Commission, who was part of the drafting process, gave us a couple of important, important details that mass surveillance will never be allowed 24-7 unless there is potentially also a court order and uh, there's judicial oversight eventually in, in, in the process. Don't you think that there should be specific cases in limited scenarios where facial recognition surveillance should be allowed so as to guarantee national security? I mean, the old debate, privacy versus security, but do you think there should be any exceptions? Uh, so I do not think there should be any exceptions, no, um, for, for a lot of reasons. So when you were talking about that Ghent example, um, listeners won't have been able to see, but I was I was kind of nodding um, furiously along as you were, were talking about that, because that replicates exactly what we've seen across Europe, you know, a real lack of transparency, a failure to comply with the existing rules for doing things like data protection impact assessments, a failure to take on board how it could be discriminatory, you know, with real systematic failures and a lot of, of secrecy um, in how these technologies that are deployed, how they're deployed, that's, that's really worrying. Um, but kind of beyond that, I guess, going back to this, this broader question, I think it's inaccurate to, to see it as privacy versus security, which is how this debate often gets framed, because that that's setting up this assumption that we are secure in a, a society where we're under constant or you know partial time biometric mass surveillance. And that actually is ignoring the, the huge risks to people's security, to people's safety, and to people's lives of living in a mass surveillance society. It's presenting the use of these technologies as something that will only do good. And we know that's not true. So this, this isn't a, a hypothetical. We're seeing, for example, people trying to protest, le people legitimately trying to raise their voices about issues that are important to them um, and and in, in France, for example, we've seen those people, the police trying to deploy facial recognition drones against those people, which can have a huge chilling effect. And you know, if you look at and compare that to somewhere like Russia, where in the last few days, we've actually seen activists and protesters being persecuted and arrested for attending protests through the use of facial recognition uh, software analyses. I think it really reveals the fact that, that we're not talking in the abstract, we're not talking about a technology that is unequivocally good or that can do really good things. We're talking about something that can pose threats to people's lives. And another example I would give is we've been doing some, some collaborations with activists and experts from the Roma and Sinti rights and digital rights community looking into how the very process of 
gathering and processing people's biometric data has a lot of roots in things like Nazi ideology. So for, for Roma communities who were persecuted by measurements about the, the amount of distance between their eyes and the shape of their foreheads that was used to decide whether they would live or die, this is not just a, a question of a camera being installed on, on their street. This is actually really about threats to people's, people's lives, people's existence and the existence of communities. So yeah, my, my first conclusion there to draw is, is to really challenge the, this idea that somehow living under mass surveillance gives us security. Um, I would also throw in, as, as well as the, the Holocaust, I'd throw in you know, East Germany and you know, other historical examples of mass surveillance societies where people are stratified based on who they are and what they look like. People are turned against each other to, to show that that does not lead to safer societies. Yeah, I mean, we've seen in the last one or two years also from the academic community, from the scientific community, lots of papers and lots of actual proof that there is inherent bias in, in AI technology, that we have many, many ingrained problems when it comes to algorithms. So this is absolutely an extremely, extremely important point. Um, but I want to yeah, zoom out the... Yeah, yeah. I just want to add, yeah, and you're totally right about the bias embedded in the technologies, but I would add further that it's not just about the bias in the data and the way that these algorithms are trained. It's also in how they're used. We massively see mm -hmm. these technologies deployed against people of color, against migrant communities, against poor working class communities. It's a deliberate choice to focus on those communities over things like financial crimes, for example. That's an, an ideology that's embedded within these technologies. And so even if you could theoretically remove the bias, which I don't think you can, but even if you could, we would still be likely to see them being used in harmful and discriminatory ways. Um, I would like to uh, zoom out here um, and bring the conversation back to the point you made about, about innovation. Maybe this false uh, dichotomy between innovation and fundamental rights and how we actually frame, frame the debate. Because, I mean, people from the business communities, people from, from digital industries who have vested interest, of course, in pursuing this technology, they always make the point about innovation and, and Europe's inability to catch up with, with the US or China when it comes to technology because of over overburdensome regulation. How does Edry see this debate? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would challenge anyone that sees catching up as needing to violate human rights. It, we know that we can innovate, we can have fantastic technology that doesn't intrinsically harm people. Um, so I, I, it's, for me, that's, that's not a, a legitimate argument to, to think that we might have to violate people's privacy or roll out discriminatory and harmful systems just so that we can compete with other world powers. If, if that's what competing looks like, then I would argue that we don't want to be competing for who can have the most dystopian, the most sinister technologies. And I think the GDPR was a very good example that showed that actually our our privacy credentials, our desire to protect people's data and people's rights in Europe can be a, a USP, you know, is something that gives us a competitive advantage. Okay, it might mean that we can't do the unfettered surveillance of Uyghur Muslim populations, but for me, that's a very, very good thing that we, we have those limits. 
You, you just mentioned GDPR, and every time I, I, I hear um, a reference to, to this landmark regulation, I, I think of a number, and the number is uh, 3,999, almost 4,000 amendments to the GDPR while it was being discussed in the European Parliament. Um, so before we close our conversation, let's talk about lobbying and um, the immense interest from the digital industry, different stakeholders in influencing the artificial intelligence regulation. As we saw in the GDPR, it was a fierce battle in Parliament. Um, how do you think this is going to roll out? Are we going to have a new record when it comes to, to amendments? And how do you, as a digital rights coalition, fit in uh, and make sure that you get your voice heard? Yeah, so I think it's it's so vital when this is a piece of, of legislation that uh, is gonna have such a big impact on such a wide range of industries. And there are so many different actors with such a strong interest in seeing their interests represented. Um, it's more important than ever that we have a strong civil society voice. So one of the things we're doing as Edry is working not just within our network of uh, digital rights organizations, but taking a broader approach and building coalitions with groups that work on these broader, more intersectional issues um, of social justice, anti-racism, for example, because although some AI technologies are, are new, a lot of these problems are really old problems. We're not talking about anything uh, revolutionary. We're talking about things like police profiling, which has happened in the analog for probably hundreds of years. So there's a lot of groups out there that have amazing horrible you know but it's horrible that they have it but this this amazing level of experience about a lot of the issues that are at play here and so it's really important for us to be building those bridges and working together but it is also really really important that we have strong voices that can counter the industry um, because we see day in day out how desperate uh, many industry players are to avoid what they see as hard regulation. Um, and you know, I would again point back to GDPR to say you know, the number of fines that have been levied against different companies for violating the GDPR shows how bad their practices would be if we didn't have these rules and these watchdogs looking out to make sure that people's rights are being put first. And um, so I think there's a huge role for civil society to play. Um, I do think, yeah, we could be looking at a, a lot of amendments. Um, you know, we, we have been working with the parliament and there's increasingly a lot of support from different members of the European parliament um, now across five different political groups for our campaign to ban biometric mass surveillance, the Reclaim Your Face campaign, and also for our broader demands when it comes to AI um, yeah, more broadly, that we have other prohibitions on things like predictive policing um, and that we have the explicit inclusion of marginalized groups in rules on AI, um, those kinds of demands, we're really starting to see them be picked up in the parliament um, because we are emphasizing, and I, I think people are seeing that these are issues that uh, matter from a gender perspective, they matter from a race perspective, an LGBT perspective, uh, media freedom, you know, whatever your cause might be, workers' rights, there are reasons why AI can be harmful and especially biometric mass surveillance. So I think it is about building those coalitions and, and having a voice that, you know, even if we cannot equal the 
the GAFAMs of the world with our, our financial resources. Um, I think the, the legal arguments that we have and the credibility that we have from representing so many people across Europe is something that, that does need to be taken seriously. And, and we've seen already that that's, that's starting to happen. Um, the commission themselves said that without civil society's pressure, they wouldn't have included those unacceptable uses in the AI legislation. So it, it shows that we can affect change. We can make a difference. Yeah, a fantastic point. And as you said uh, just now, the importance of, of, of building bridges. In closing, maybe a final question. Um, apart from your endeavors on AI and biometric surveillance, what else is on Idris' agenda in the coming months? Maybe you can tell our listeners more about, about your other, other goals and other activities. Yeah, for sure. So uh, some of my colleagues work really closely on the DSA, the Digital Services Act, which um, in my kind of my own dummies guide for Ella and, and how to think of that is it's like the rules for the Internet. Um, so that's an enormous issue where my colleagues and lots of people in the Edry network are looking at everything from the sorts of adverts you see on Facebook, and why you see them, why that can be a problem through to, you know, complex rules around intermediary liability and interoperability and, and lots of other um, words that my colleagues would be better suited to, uh, to, to, to explain. But um, yeah, I'd say for anyone that's interested, the, the DSA, the Digital Services Act, is a really big piece of work. And then we also do lots of work on law enforcement. Um, there are so many databases uh, at Europe's borders um, which contain biometric data about lots of people on the move. We, we see this, this vast ideology of collecting more and more data of, of not just citizens, but people from outside of the EU. Um, and this is often managed in ways that, that can be really problematic. Um, so we do a lot of work in looking into those databases and so that data isn't being collected about each of us unfairly without a legal basis. Um, so the work we do is, is really broad. Um, and and kind of like I said before, I feel like AI can touch on, on almost everything um, that, that's coming up in the digital world. So, you know, our work is just beginning. We've, we've got a lot up ahead of us, but it's an exciting time because we're showing that we can influence you know, that people's rights, people's interests can be really, really influential in how these laws are developed. Fantastic. Dear listeners, this was the convincing voice of Ela Jakubowska from EDRI, who just led us through the complexities of, of AI, biometric mass surveillance, and the importance of civil rights organizations in standing up for our digital rights in the digital domain. Um, thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned to the Martin Center, and I'll catch you next time. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. Follow us on Facebook.